This is exactly right. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out. You never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. So I'm Katie Burson. Uh, I live in Japan with my husband and two daughters, um, Louisa and Zuzu. They're five and three. And we had heard about the coronavirus, which is what we were calling it at that point, maybe just a few weeks before we were scheduled to go on our cruise. Um, The cruise was leaving out of Yokohama, coming back to Yokohama. It was really ideal because we didn't have to fly anywhere, which we thought would be safer. But, uh, you know, my mom, who is actually a manager at a hospital laboratory, was all up in arms. She's like, please see if you can cancel. I'm really worried about it. And we were like, oh, mom, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we, we actually had to meet with the preventive medicine officer because we're in the service um, prior to leaving just to make sure our vaccinations were up to date and we were, you know, aware of what the risks were and it didn't really come into play. We met with her two weeks prior, then the week prior to our departure and it wasn't a concern. It was just wash your hands, you know, like don't be stupid. <laughs> so um, my husband and my daughters decided not to get off the ship in Hong Kong um, because we didn't want to risk it with the girls. We didn't really know what we were dealing with, but I went ahead. I wore, that was our second stop on the cruise. So we're like five days into the cruise. Um, I carried my hand sanitizer. We exercised what we thought was, you know, extreme caution, which at this point, now we actually know what extreme caution is. But anyway, I came directly back onto the boat, got in the shower, washed the clothes. You know, we were trying to be as careful as we could. I didn't say hello to the girls. They were in their kid camp for the day um, until I had like thoroughly de-germed. But then you know, we carried on. We didn't have any other real concerns or red flags with the virus until we got to Okinawa, which was our last stop of the cruise. And um, they said that, you know, the Japanese Ministry of Health is exercising caution and needs to scan each individual passenger prior to them deboarding. So we we were delayed somewhere between three and five hours getting off the boat because they were scanning everyone. And so we thought, man, you know, I guess things are ramping up. It must be, you know, more of a concern, but we still didn't think, or we didn't know, and I don't think anyone did um, know what it really was like the animal that we were dealing with until two days later when we arrived in Yokohama and Aaron's, this part was like so surreal. We're sitting there at our last dinner. And the waitstaff must have known what was up. They must have been briefed because they didn't miss a beat. They continued serving. They didn't pause to listen. There wasn't a reaction. But the captain came on and he spoke in English first. And of course, the dining room is primarily English um, passengers, Japanese passengers. So he spoke in English first. He explained that there was a passenger um, who had boarded at Yokohama, stayed on only until Hong Kong, and then deboarded because he wasn't feeling well, and Hong Kong was his home. And he had tested positive for the coronavirus. And so you know, my husband and I just kind of look at each other. We don't want to react because we don't want to alarm the kids. So, and also we didn't really know what that meant for us. So we 
we sat and we listened. And then because we knew what was being said once the announcement was being made in Japanese, it was really kind of eerie because I'm looking at the Japanese passengers as they're receiving this information and I could see the colors draining from their face. Like they were gray, you know, and it was very somber in the dining room. We finished our meals and, um, and we went back to our room and we had to call, you know, a couple of people that my husband worked with and say, you know, here's the situation. And we, we packed, you know, we were ready to get off the boat the next morning at seven in the morning. And of course, seven o'clock rolls around, there's no announcements. Eight o'clock rolls around, there's no announcements. Nine o'clock rolls around, the ship is being quarantined for a full 14 days. And so we just, you know, we took it. Uh, as that, you know, it looks like we're going to be here for a while. We explained to our girls there are bad germs. We don't think we have any, but we have to keep them away. We're going to be washing our hands. You may not leave the room. And every day was different as far as the information that we received. Um, obviously, the the ship was in reaction mode. So we didn't receive our meals that first day until like three o'clock in the afternoon, which is really hard with kids, but we don't, we never blamed them. There was never any anger. Um, it was just, everybody's trying to do their best to keep this thing contained. Really the staff and crew on the ship really rallied to keep the kids entertained. I mean, gosh, I, they ate so many kids meals and they had so many toys delivered. You know, we just exercised extreme caution and, and it, it paid off. We all came off healthy and well. And then we went straight from the boat to another 14 day quarantine because we live on a military base. People look at me and they're like, God, you've been through something and it must have been so hard. But really, like truly, I got to wake up with my babies snuggled next to me every day. I didn't have to cook, to, like I didn't have to cook, I didn't have to clean. All we had to do was play and be together and hope for the best. You know, like you just control what you can. I, and as a, as a military family, I have never in my entire marriage or since my kids have been born, had six weeks of my husband all to myself. And really the outcome of it it was kind of just this like beautiful moment in humanity. Like so many people cared. I mean, I was hearing from people that I haven't spoken to in probably 20 years. And it wasn't just like a little message on Facebook. It was like this like in-depth message, like I'm praying for you. You know, we, we can send you things. What do you need? It was just really beautiful. People were delivering breakfast, lunch, and dinner as as if I couldn't cook. Like, you know, like they wanted to do nice things. They wanted to reach out and help. And it just made me feel like so loved and so supported. And I think that would be like a really great takeaway from this tragedy is, you know, like when we can work together and support each other, it's a beautiful thing. And we should also value our older generations. So you just heard from Katie Burson, who we were so excited to connect with and talk about her experience on the Diamond Princess. She was on the Diamond Princess, y'all. Yeah. That's like, like that's a wild. Big deal. Yeah. Famous. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Katie. Also, I just Katie, what an incredible human. She had the most positive outlook I have ever heard from someone who went through something like that and really helped me try and see silver linings in things as well. So I just really appreciated getting to speak with her too. Absolutely. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike. And this is This Podcast Will Kill You. 
Hello. Welcome to Chapter 4 of our Anatomy of a Pandemic series on COVID-19. So far, we've discussed the biology of the virus, how the disease progresses, and the control strategies that we're using to slow its transmission. And in this episode, we dive into the epidemiological characteristics of this pandemic. We brought back the amazing Dr. Carlos Del Rio, who chatted with us in our first coronavirus episode back in February about the importance of investing in global health. You might remember his excellent Dolly Parton quote to go along with that. (laughs) I sure do. So in this mini-sode, we ask him all about the R-naught of the virus, that reproductive rate of the virus, and how to bring it down, what flattening the curve means, and why we see different case fatality rates in different regions of the world, and the absolute necessity of acting now to help slow the spread of this disease. But before we get into that, we have some business to take care of. It's quarantine time. <laughs> what are we drinking for this one? A pickle martini? Is that right? Yeah, that's the one. A pickle martini. Quarantini four. <laughs> Our first ever martini? No, Bubo Bebida. Oh, you're right. That was so long ago. Does it even Steel count? trap, Aaron. Steel trap. Do you know how difficult it is to like think of, I'll be like, oh, this is a great recipe. And then, I'm and then like, I have to scroll through yeah. all of the old ones. Oh, if you also didn't know, we have a great resource of all of our quarantinis on our website, by the yes. way. Yes, you can click the quarantini tab. Mm-hmm. And all of our Pussy Burritas, the non-alcoholic version, which we'll post the recipe for this pickle, pickled jalapeno martini. Yeah, you could also just use a pickle if you don't have pickled jalapenos. I didn't have a pickle. So I had to use pickled jalapenos. Desperate times, you know? (laughs) Desperate times. I wasn't going to go to the store for a jar of pickles. No, of course not. It's shelter in place, Erin. Shelter in place. Before diving into the interview, we also wanted to talk a bit about the disease ecology, since that's kind of our forte, of spillover events in general, and then go through a timeline of events to give us an idea of the spread of this virus. This timeline is, it's intense. It's intense. But it really gives us a good picture of what exponential growth really looks like. And how fast a disease like this can spread across the entire world. Math, man. Who knew? (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) Mathematicians, that's who. Modelers, statisticians. Good point. (laughs) Epidemiologists. Anyways. Anyways. The ecology of COVID-19 and its emergence, it deserves a more nuanced discussion than I'm going to give it here, because we want to get to the meat of this episode quickly, right? But we wanted to touch on a few things. As has been reported in peer-reviewed articles, as well as from experts on these episodes, this virus likely emerged from a bat, which is also where SARS originated. From bats, the COVID-19 virus was probably passed to another host before infecting humans. This sequence of events, a virus spread from bats to other animal species and then to humans, it's not unprecedented. In fact, this has happened in many other disease outbreaks. And it does not mean, in bold, underline, Mm -hmm. it does not mean that killing bats or destroying their habitat will prevent spillover events. So don't get your pitchforks out and start To try to kill all the bats. No, we're not blaming bats, quote unquote, blaming. This is how ecology works. Mm -hmm. It's it's just, it doesn't mean that bats are malicious or that Mm -hmm. we should kill the bats. Mm -mm. In fact, doing those things like culling bat populations or destroying their habitat, that has been shown to actually lead to an increase in disease outbreaks from bats and spillover events from bats. So... Bat conservation and the preservation of habitats is actually one of the most important ways that we can reduce spillover events, and funding bat conservation, especially in regions that may not have the resources to do so, that is crucial in this fight against emerging infectious diseases. Also, bats provide really important ecosystem services. They're pollinators. They're seed dispersers. They eat insects. Ones that annoy us, for example. (laughs) And they're also one of the most amazing and fascinating groups of animals on this planet. This is our personal opinion. Mm -hmm. And the role that some bat species play in some spillover events from wildlife to humans cannot and should not be ignored. 
This is a multifaceted problem. Ignoring it prevents a complete understanding of the ecology of these events and how they happen, and it can ultimately be more damaging to bat conservation. If we want to prevent spillover, we need the complete picture. If you would like to read more about the ecology of bat virus spillover events, there are a couple of great papers by Dr. Raina Plowright. Boop, boop. She's awesome. Um, and we'll link to those on our website. We're also going to put up a paper that discusses a lot of the ecosystem services that bats provide. That's by Coons et al. Uh, on our website as well. Cool? Cool. Don't hate yes. the bats. Don't hate the bats. But also don't ignore the role that they play in these spillover events. Right. Okay. Now on to the timeline. It's a big one. <laughs> Let's start <laughs> at the beginning. It's like eight pages of timeline. I know, but you know, we're just going to work through it. Um, but I will say that, you know, this is not even a complete timeline. Like we cut a lot of this out. And so what I have, one of the great resources I have found is, and so this is where we got all of this timeline information basically is from Al Jazeera. They have, they're continually updating a timeline about COVID-19 across the entire globe. And so if you want really detailed information, that's the place to go. Awesome. Okay. So Chinese officials are still looking for the patient zero, quote unquote, of COVID-19, but it's possible that they will never be identified. But what is clear is that the disease had been spreading for a while before it was recognized as a novel infection and one of concern. Mm -hmm. So what might be the earliest case of COVID-19 was traced to November 17th, 2019 in a 55-year-old person but that hasn't been confirmed. Mm. If it is, though, that predates the wet market where the first apparent cluster of COVID-19 emerged. So community transmission might have been going on for a while before it was recognized, or it could have been amplified at that wet market. But the market may not have necessarily been the site of the spillover event. Which I feel like kind of makes sense to me in some cases because I know early on they were trying to identify like what animal at the wet market and we couldn't really find a good one. So mm -hmm. if it was a person at the market who just happened to be there infected that ended up causing sort of this spread, that kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And honestly, a delay in recognizing a novel disease, especially a respiratory infection whose symptoms can pretty easily be mistaken for diseases caused by a number of other respiratory viruses, it's not that unusual. It might take a while before you realize, A, that there is an unusual number of pneumonia cases outside of the norm, and B, that these cases are caused by a new virus that you haven't seen before. So by late December, there were several cases of unusual pneumonia caused by an unknown virus in Wuhan, and Chinese health officials notified the WHO of this on December 31st. Yep. The next day, January 1st, the wet market, where this first cluster I mentioned was apparent, the Huanan Seafood Wholesale Market was shut down. At this point, there were more than 40 people infected. On January 7th, officials announced they had identified a new virus, according to the World Health Organization. The novel virus at that time was named 2019 NCoV and was identified as belonging to the coronavirus family. January 9th, the first death from the virus occurs in China. January 13th, the World Health Organization reported a case in Thailand, the first outside China, in a woman who had arrived there from Wuhan. January 16th, Japan reports a confirmed case, again from someone who had visited Wuhan. Between January 17th and January 20th, the U.S., Nepal, France, Australia, Malaysia, Singapore, South Korea, Vietnam, and Taiwan all confirmed cases of this novel coronavirus. I mean, that's a matter of weeks. Yep. Okay. January 22nd, the death toll in China jumped to 17 with more than 550 infections. Airports in Europe and Asia increased screenings of passengers traveling from China. Wow, 550 by January 22nd. I know, I keep getting chills when I read this timeline. Me too. January 23rd, Wuhan was placed under effective quarantine. At this point, the WHO said there was no evidence of the virus spreading between humans outside of China, and the outbreak did not yet constitute a public emergency of international health concern. 
January 26, new cases were confirmed in the U.S., Taiwan, Thailand, Japan, and South Korea. January 27th, the death toll in China rose to 106, with 100 in Hubei province. Another 4,515 people in China were reported to be infected. There were 2,700 confirmed cases in Hubei province, up from 1,423 the day before. It's like a doubling, essentially. Mm-hmm. On January 30th, the WHO declared COVID-19 a global emergency as the death toll in China jumped to 170 with 7,711 cases reported. On this same date, India and the Philippines confirmed their first cases of the virus with one infected patient in each country. January 31st, the next day, the number of confirmed cases in China jumped to 9,809. Russia, Spain, Sweden, and the UK all confirmed their first cases of the virus. And on February 2nd, the first death outside China was reported in the Philippines. On February 6th, the death toll in mainland China rose to at least 563, with more than 28,000 cases confirmed. Meanwhile, authorities in Malaysia reported the country's first known human-to-human transmission, and the number of people reported infected in Europe reached 30. 30. 30. 30. February 6th. On February 7th, Li Wenliang, a doctor who was among the first to sound the alarm over the coronavirus, died, and Hong Kong introduced prison sentences for anyone breaching quarantine rules. Mm. On February 9th, the death toll in China surpassed that of the 2002-2003 SARS epidemic, with 811 deaths recorded and 37,198 infections. It's worth noting the SARS epidemic infected around 8,000 people. Yes. On February 11th, the WHO announced that the new coronavirus would be called COVID-19. As of February 12th, 175 people were infected on board the Diamond Princess cruise ship. February 14th, Egypt became the first country in Africa to report a case, and France reported Europe's first death from the virus. As of February 17th, there were 1,770 deaths reported in mainland China and 70,548 cases. Japan also confirmed 99 new cases of the virus on board the quarantined Diamond Princess cruise ship. February 18th saw China's daily infection figures drop below 2,000 for the first time since January, with the country's health commission reporting 72,436 infections on the mainland and 1,868 deaths. On February 19th, Iran reported two deaths from the coronavirus, hours after confirming its first cases. February 20th, South Korea reports its first death from the coronavirus. February 22nd, South Korea saw its largest spike in a single day, with 229 new cases of the virus. On that same day, Italy reported its first two deaths, while Iran confirmed a fifth death among 10 new infections. A sixth death was later confirmed, though it wasn't clear whether this case was included in the country's 28 confirmed cases. February 26, the global death toll neared 2,800, with a total of around 80,000 confirmed cases reported globally. On the same day, Norway, Romania, Greece, Georgia, Pakistan, North Macedonia, and Brazil all detected their first cases of the coronavirus. On February 27th, Estonia, Denmark, Northern Ireland, and the Netherlands reported their first coronavirus cases. The number of infections globally passed 82,000, including more than 2,800 deaths. On March 3rd, Italy announced the death toll in the country reached 77, equaling the total deaths in Iran, which stood at 77. On March 7th, the coronavirus had killed nearly 3,500 people, and infected another 102,000 people across more than 90 countries. On March 10th, both Iran and Italy recorded their highest death tolls in a single day. A total of 54 people died in Iran over a 24-hour period, while in Italy, 168 new fatalities were recorded from the coronavirus. 
On the same day, Lebanon and Morocco reported their first deaths from the virus, while Democratic Republic of the Congo, Panama, and Mongolia confirmed their first cases of infection. On March 11th, World Health Organization declared the coronavirus outbreak a pandemic, as Turkey, Ivory Coast, Honduras, and Bolivia confirmed their first cases. In Qatar, infections jumped drastically from 24 to 262 in a single day. On March 16th, New York City's bars, theaters, and cinemas are closed down as the number of cases continue to rise in the U.S. On March 19th, Italy overtook China as the country with the most coronavirus-related deaths, registering 3,405 deaths compared to 3,245 in China. The death toll in Spain soared by 209 to a total of 767 fatalities from the previous day. A roughly 25% increase in infections was recorded in Spain, taking the country's total to 17,147. On March 20th, which is just a couple of days ago, coronavirus-related deaths surged past 10,000 globally, which is more than the number of people infected with SARS during Mm -hmm. the entire course of the epidemic. Mm -hmm. The number of cases in Germany rose by 2,958 overnight to a total of 13,957. Spain, meanwhile, had a death toll of 1,002. On the same day, though, March 20th, in China, however, no new domestic cases were reported for a second consecutive day. It's a big deal. On March 21st, Europe remains the epicenter of the coronavirus, with Italy reporting 627 new fatalities, its biggest daily increase, bringing the total number of deaths to 4,032 amid 47,021 cases. Spain is the second worst hit country in Europe, with more than 21,000 infections and at least 1,000 deaths. On March 22nd, which is the day that we're recording this episode, The global death toll rose above 13,000, while infection count surpassed 311,000. So right now, it is 11.41 Central Time, U.S. Central Time, and there are 318,209 confirmed cases in the globe and 13,664 deaths, 94,700 total recovered. Wow. It's a very chilling timeline. That is a very chilling timeline. That that was uh, really helpful, I think, to go through, though. And yeah. Because even if you didn't catch every single number and every single date, I think it's very clear from going through that that this is, A, rising and spreading very rapidly. Exponentially. Exponentially. And B, that that we're still in that exponential growth right now, today, right. March right. 22nd. So how do we slow that down? Yeah. Well, to answer that question and to talk about the characteristics of this disease, we brought back Dr. Carlos Del Rio. So yep. let's let him take it away. Right after this break. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out. You never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android.
so my name is, is Carlos Del Rio. I'm a uh, infectious physician and a public health also expert. And I'm a professor of medicine and global health here at Emory University, where I'm also the executive associate dean of Emory at Grady. So at this point in the epidemic, we've seen a lot more about how the virus has spread in different places and in different populations. Do we have a better sense of what the r naught is for the virus? Well, you know, I think we're beginning to know better what, again, and, and we should define what r naught is, even though people are probably now hearing this term and a term that was a sort of a epidemiology lingo is now becoming like household dinner conversation term. But, you know, I've been talking to I've been talking to CEOs of companies and others who now now call me and I had a CEO of a company today call me. What do you think about the R-naught, you know, today? <laughs> so, so, so it's interesting to see that R-naught has become sort of a lingo that we all talk about. But but basically what this means is the, is a reproductive number, right? It's the number of infections that a virus causes. So one person, infected person leads to other people being infected. And there are diseases like measles, for example, that may have an R-naught of 15. So one infection leads to 15. And if an R naught is below one, then the disease dies; it disappears. So, so MERS has typically had an R naught below one. So we we rarely see epidemics. We have not seen an epidemic from MERS, but this disease has an R naught of about two and a half to three, which means that somewhere between two and a half and three individuals get infected after a person has been infected, and that's what causes what we call an exponential growth in this epidemic. Because, and I try to explain this to people in in simple terms: if you have one infected person, that person infects, let's say, two and a half persons. So let's go with the lower limit. So that means that after five days, you're going to have two and a half infected persons. So now you have that person plus two and a half. But then in 30 days, you're going to have 406 infected people. That's what we call exponential growth. Can you talk a little bit about the progression of the epidemic in China and in some other places where the disease seems to be slowing down? In those places, is there a risk of a second wave of infections? You know, I think there's always a risk. So let's suppose we can decrease, I told you, you know, one to two and a half to 400 at the end of 30 days. If you can decrease exposure, you can decrease transmission by 30, 50%. So you can bring the R naught from two and a half to, let's say, 1.2, 1.25. Now, at the end of five days, you have 1.5 infected people instead of 2.5. And at the end of 30 days, you'll have 15 infected people instead of 400. Now, if you can bring that R naught below one, now at the end of, of five days, you'll have, let's say, 0.7 of a person infected, so not even one. And then at the end of 30 days, you'll have maybe two people infected. So you will probably still see some cases, but as long as you can really decrease exposure, and that happens by two mechanisms. Number one, initially, China has done it by, by social distancing, right? By, by quarantining, by isolating people, by really going into a national shutdown. But something that's going to happen eventually, as you get more people infected, you essentially have a, uh, you know, a herd immunity, and there's not enough people to infect out there. So the number of transmissions also goes down. So I suspect there will be little clusters here and there, but I don't think there's going to be a huge wave again, assuming that there's immunity to this virus. Mm. And so kind of along those lines that you mentioned about trying to decrease that r not overall, can you talk us through what the stages of an epidemic are and what it means to try and flatten that epidemic curve? How do we know when that actually happens? Well, we know when that actually happens. I mean, this is a complicated phenomenon, but, you know, the epidemic starts, starts growing. It's really when you get that inflection point where, where the number, when cases are not growing by a factor of one. When you get to cases growing by a, by a factor of only one, then you start seeing that, that flattening of the curve. Then you start seeing, but, but that, by that point, it's a little too late. And I think about it like a plane taking off, right? Initially, you, you were seeing you know, 10, 20, 15, 40, 100 cases. You know, the plane was just still running down the runway very quickly. Then the nose goes up, and then you know, we start seeing in the US 100 cases. And now we're at, you know, whatever number of cases we're at today, we're like 16 or 18,000, right? So now the plane is at 18,000 feet. At some point in time, you're going to see it get to 30,000 and it's going to start leveling off. So just like a plane, you, you get to a point where, where you have enough people infected out there and you have enough transmission that the number of susceptibles is going down. So I don't like to talk about phases of an epidemic because there's really no phases. The natural history of an epidemic 
is to continue until you infect it or you or you or you cause all susceptibles to be either infected or dead, right? But but what you want to be sure is that you prevent that. And and, and what we need to do is is do everything we can to to shut down that R naught, to decrease the R naught to below one. If we can bring the R naught below one, we will control transmission. Right. And so that needs people to uh, stay at home and practice social distancing and and so on. And um, but I'd like to revisit something you mentioned uh, in talking about how the epidemic has progressed in China. And so one of the things that you talked about was herd immunity, uh, which would require that this infection with this virus leads to immunity. Is that something that we have seen? Do our people who are infected with this virus and then they recover are they immune and uh, resistant to future infections? There's been a lot of talk of whether you can reinfect it or not. I think, from what I can say, tell, that people are are gonna uh, gonna develop immunity and are going to not get infected. So I think immunity is gonna help us uh, going forward. Gotcha. I guess, like, what is the relative um, effect that social distancing has had versus herd immunity has had? You know, it's 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 really hard to 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 tease that apart. But I would tell you that if they hadn't done what they've done, the, the, the massive shutdown that they did, I think social distancing probably may, played a huge role there. And the reason I say that is because if they had not done this, I think the numbers would have been staggeringly higher. And, you know, just I look at it today, you know, I mean, I was just in shock today when I saw that, uh, you know, China as of today has about 80,000 80, cases with 3,000 and 200 deaths. Italy has half the number of cases, 40,000 cases, but has more deaths than anywhere else. Italy has now surpassed China in deaths. But, but I think China really emphasized uh, uh, the, the, the social distancing, and that's why their number of deaths compared to the number of cases is so much lower. It's 4% versus Italy, which is 8%, right? Right. Right. And I think that's one of the things that this outbreak has revealed, particularly here or looking at the U.S., is that you know we have to slow the spread of disease. People need to stay at home. They need to practice social distancing. But I feel like, at least anecdotally, this message, and also some, from what I've seen uh, on Twitter and on some other news reports, I feel like this message doesn't seem to have properly sunk in, especially in areas that may not be currently experiencing the same number of confirmed positive cases as other regions or in populations that have been said to be at lower risk. So how can we convince people just how important it is to stay home when they can? Well, you know, again, it's in your hands to become infected or not, right? If you become infected, you will then lead to other infections. So the best thing, I mean, the best vaccine we have for this is to not get infected. Because if you don't get infected, then other people won't get infected. And if other people don't get infected, then you'll stop the, the chain of transmission. And that, to me, is what we need to do right now. So, I mean, the term flattening the curve, well, the way I explain it is by saying, look, if, if I'm at the hospital and 300 people come in sick today, I can't take care of them. But if 300 people come in sick over a month, I can't take care of them. It's easy. It's easier, right? So, mm-hmm. so we want to spread out the number of cases. But more importantly, for the general individual, it's in your hands to prevent transmission. If you don't get infected, you're not going to pass it to others. And if you don't pass it to others, you're, you're cutting down that transmission chain. So cutting down that transmission chain is something that we all have the ability to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I, I had another question for you, actually, about in looking at the differences in fatality rates between like in China versus in Italy, h- how do you feel like that compares to something like South Korea, where they tested very large numbers of people and the death rate there was as low as I think like less than 2%. Is that because of better identification of cases, in your opinion, or because of better social distancing and treatment methods? Or what do you think some of those differences are? Uh, I think that two things happen. Uh, I think that, you know, every country is a little different and there's some issues. Italy, clearly, if you look at who got infected in Italy, uh, clearly Italy had a much older population. And and I think that clearly was playing a role. Uh, If you look at the distribution of Italy versus South Korea, in South Korea, almost 30% of their cases were between the ages of 20 and 29. 
and, and almost 20, 20% between the ages of 50 and 59. In Italy, in the country, I would say almost 40% of cases were between the ages of 70 and above. So you have a very different distribution of cases in a population. You also have very different distribution of comorbidities in a population. So it's not simple. And we're learning very clearly that mortalities are very different in different populations, right? Right. And that to me, that to me is, is very important because our populations look very different. Yeah. You know, recently, earlier this week, there was that report that came out from the Imperial College of London that had these, um, you know, variety of modeling predictions based on, you know, no control strategies, mitigation strategies, suppression strategies, but all of the numbers were fairly alarming. And so can we make any guesses at this point uh, to what we might see in terms of numbers infected or just how long the outbreak will last? Like, what is the end game on this? Well, the end game is to stop it. And uh, I, I worry that, you know, here in the United States, we don't have, we have, we have several problems. Number one, we don't have Wuhan. We have multiple Wuhans. We have a Wuhan in Washington state. We have a Wuhan in uh, New York state. We have a Wuhan now happening in, in the South. So we have multiple Wuhans. And I think that to me is one issue that, you know, we don't have one Wuhan. And the other thing we have, our public health is, is decentralized, it's not centralized, right? In China, the central government can say, do this, and it will happen. Here in the US, the federal government doesn't have that authority. The federal government makes recommendations. And then after the federal government makes recommendations, then the states, really public health is run at the state and local health department level. So you have states saying, oh, you know, California saying, we're gonna shut down the state, and state of Florida saying, oh, you know, we're okay. You know, we don't want to, yesterday I was hearing the governor being interviewed and saying, you know, we don't really don't want to impinge on individual liberties. And if the college students want to be partying out there, is their right? So, so you have a very different approach. And, and if you put in the middle of this, the economy, and, and there's no doubt that epidemics have huge economic consequences. I mean, the epidemics hurt business and epidemics hurt consumption and epidemics hurt a lot of things that we've seen already what the stock market has done and what, you know, is going to happen to small business and to other businesses. So, so, so I can see a politician being reluctant to take the tough measures that are needed. And, uh, and that's when you say we need an independent body that can help and make those recommendations. But unfortunately, we don't have such independent body in this country. It's all based on, you know, it's all based on political decisions. And unfortunately, it's not, it's not going well. I mean, I think you and I will agree that the response in the U.S. has been haphazard at best. Yeah. In in one of the things that, that I think a lot of people are wondering is that at, at the beginning, we were looking at this as a matter of weeks. And as the epidemic, as the pandemic has progressed, it seems like now we're looking at this on the scale of months. I, I think the more you delay the response, the more the time is, right? And I think that's something that, that people need to understand, that, that as you take more time, more time takes you. You know, basically, it, it becomes harder to, to do the right things. Yeah. I mean, that's what it seems like, is that even in places that have been relatively low impact uh, by the virus, it seems like not even the tip of the iceberg, but the tip of the tip of the iceberg, where we don't even know the extent of the community transmission that's going on. And so, you know, we see these actions like shelter in place that have been happening in California and in parts of New York, uh, and maybe going into effect elsewhere. But is that like, should that be happening now in places that haven't seen the number of cases that those uh, states have seen? The answer is yes. When somebody says to me, oh, we only have 20 cases, we got this, this under control. I said, if you only knew, right? By the time you have 20 cases, you're already, you know, 20 cases too late. So, so I, would, I would emphasize and say over and over, no, you cannot do that. I mean, that is a mistake that everybody has made. And I don't want to get political or anything, but you know, you know, I look at, at different Trump quotes through the epidemic, right? And the, his first press conference about this was we got in, in February 28th, we, we saw 14 cases. We got this under control. Next week, there's going to be no cases. And now we have a national emergency, you know? So you get distracted and, and this comes back to hunt you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. 
um, there's been a lot of talk about this virus potentially becoming another seasonal influenza type virus. What do you think about, is that something that we think is likely at this point, that this is now so well established that this is going to be kind of a recurrent seasonal thing? You know, I can't, I can't, I don't, it's possible. I'm going to, I think at this point in time, it's it's speculative to say that. I don't want to worry about the future. I want to worry about the present. And the president, we have a, the house is burning, right? We have a fire in the house. And I almost sound here like I'm, somebody's asking me, well, you know, once you rebuild the house, you think it'll be another fire again? I said, let's put the fire out again first, you know, let's worry about that later. (laughs) So, So let's take care of the current problem. And the current problem is let's stop this and then we'll figure out about the rest. You know, there's a lot of really good work happening in vaccines and other things. So, so depends whether we have a vaccine. That I think is the answer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think one of the things in particular that I'm still trying to get a grasp on, on the entire timeline or uh, an, an understanding of it is the testing and the controversy around the testing. Can you walk us through a little bit of that and why there were why it was slow at the beginning, what's going on now, uh, just sort of a, a brief on the testing aspect? Well, I think in the testing aspect, we have, we have three things. You know, number one, we have found a new virus, and the virus sequences were put in the Internet, and the, the CDC developed a test. And, and then, of course, this is not, you know, people keep on talking about a kit. This is not a kit. You know, this is not a, a something that you go to a store and you buy, right? This is something that they developed. This was a, a homebrew, you know, this is as best I can describe it. This was a, a laboratory-developed test. They did it in-house. And, of course, because it's a laboratory-developed test, and it had some challenges. And during those challenges, because of some regulations that existed, you know, unfortunately, when the president activated or said this is a national emergency, that activated a series of rules that blocked others from developing a test at this point in time at that point in time. So most people were not developing a test. Some people were developing tests, but others were not. So there was a lot of, of I would say, things that I would describe between bureaucracy, uh, unfortunate uh, mistakes, and, and just dealing with something new that prevented us from developing what would have been a robust test. And then now a lot of tests are being developed and, and companies are getting involved. But also, you know, initially CDC started getting test out to health departments. And we know, you and I know that health departments are there to do public health, but not to do clinical care. But as clinical patients were coming, then all of a sudden the health departments are supposed to be providing clinical testing, right? Which is not what they're designed to do. So now I think things are a little better because now you have companies out there working and doing and all this stuff. And that makes a huge difference. And I think we're seeing, you know, the FDA is approving tests left and right. So I think there's going to be more testing. And I think we need a lot more testing. And as you've seen, the U.S. is way behind. The problem is, is that we would like to offer the test to more people, but we still have, are at a point that we need to, to ration our testing. And we're in a situation right now in this country that we've never been before. We are rationing testing. We're rationing PPE. So I tell people, now you know what it feels to be in a developing country, right? Because we're rationing things. And, and, and that's something that we don't necessarily feel comfortable doing, but that's the reality, right? As, as we are in a rationing environment and, and rationing is very hard. Yeah, absolutely. So at this point, I know, I know some of this, it kind of varies state to state or even maybe county to county as well, but are there general recommendations at what point a person, if they suspect that they're infected, should go and try and get tested, even in spite of these shortages? If you have symptoms, if you are think you have the disease, you need to go to your doctor and or you need to call your doctor and then you'll be told whether you need to be tested or not. But what I want people to know is that if you're asymptomatic and just, I, I don't want the worried well to go get tested right now because the reality is it's just going to overwhelm the system and it's going to take care of tests that we need for people who actually need it right now. So you've touched a bit already on on that we're kind of learning as we go with this whole pandemic. But what do you think that this outbreak so far has taught us how to prepare for what we're experiencing right now? How can we do better kind of moving forward? I think right now it's really hard to know, but when we're done with this, I think we have to sit down and do the, do, do the postmortem, right? We need to do the, let's go over this and find out where, where were the mistakes, you know? And what got us in the trouble we're in, because we should have never been in this kind of trouble. And, uh, you know, I would start with one thing. I think we have, 
uh, underinvested in public health for years, right? And uh, uh, many administrations, not just the current, but I started with Obama, have really underinvested in public health. And, you know, CDC has, I think, over 700 vacancies. And uh, now because we underinvested in, in public health for years, now we're having spent billions in, in taking care of the problem. If we had invested in public health to begin with and had the surveillance equipment and other things, and I'll tell you an example of underinvestment. The state health departments are having trouble scaling up testing the way they should. Why? Because they don't have enough machines. They don't have enough personnel because they, we're underinvesting. So I would, I would really want to see people rethink public health and whether we, we have to put our priorities there. If we don't invest in public health, then we are going to be having another pandemic. And, you know, in, in, you know, I think about you know 2009 we had pandemic influenza and now we have this 10 years later, so let's re let's rethink this so we don't have the pandemic of 2029. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll I'll end with asking you a question that I asked in our first episode on coronaviruses, and I asked what about this disease concerns you, and what about the response or how the epidemic has been handled so far? Is there anything about that that is cause for optimism? What, what concerns me the most about this disease right now is the transmission in healthcare settings. Because I tell people that are healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, you know, advanced practice providers, et cetera, you know, respiratory therapists, you name it, are, are in the front lines. They're fighting this virus in the battlefield. And we have been unable to give them all the necessary personal protection equipment. So there's not enough personal protective equipment and therefore, we are setting it to battle without enough protection. And that, to me, we're doing the best we can, but we're still not where we would like to be. And, you know, we're having meetings to talk about, well, you know, how do we, how do we use PPE more appropriately? I mean, if we had enough PPE, I would feel so much comfortable. So, so not having enough material to provide our, our doctors, our nurses, our healthcare workers, the necessary protection, that, that worries me a lot because I think we're going to see a lot of infections among healthcare workers in this country. And that is bad. And that is something that it should be unacceptable. And we need to make a, a big cry about that. And, but number two is, is I also worry that people are not taking it seriously and that people are still, you know, partying. And I saw the, uh, the videos of the college kids on the beach in Florida saying, oh, this is no big deal. And what gives me hope is, is science. And I think, you know, what I've seen come together, how science, how uh, industry, how the community is coming together gives me hope. Because where I come from, where my research has been, where my work has been, which is in HIV, that was the solution. We are where we are in HIV because the, the community, the scientists, industry, and governments came together and got us where we are. To me, it's unimaginable to see where we are. I could have never predicted that we'll be where we are in HIV. And it's because, because of that, that coalition that made us better and made us stronger. So, so I have hope that between science, community, and everybody coming together, we'll be in a better place. Dr. Del Rio, he said we could call him Carlos, but it just feels wrong. <laughs> Carlos, Carlos, thank, thank you. you so much. <laughs> we really, we really appreciate it. I mean, all of the people that we have talked to, I know we keep saying this, but all of the people that we've talked to took time, precious time out of their incredibly busy schedules to mm -hmm. talk with us and to help spread some factual information mm -hmm. about this disease. And for that, we thank you so, so much. Yeah, really. Thank you so much. So what have we learned? What have we learned? I think one of the things, number one, that we've learned is that there does appear to be immunity to this virus and that this immunity could substantially contribute to what slows this pandemic. So even though we have talked about the horrible um, concept of using 
herd immunity as a strategy, mm-hmm. it could be what happens naturally as people do get infected, especially since we're seeing this exponential growth now that might be what helped to contribute to the decline of cases in China. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But more importantly is the social distancing measures, and we'll talk about that as well. Absolutely. Number two, an important thing that we learned from this episode is that we have to consider characteristics of this disease and this epidemic in the context of the places that are being affected. So we're seeing different infection rates and different case fatality rates in different regions, in part because the populations that are affected in those regions are different. And we don't at this point necessarily know exactly what all those differences are that are driving the differences in case fatality and in infection rates. That's something that we might only be able to recognize in retrospect once we make it through the other side of this outbreak. And I think that's really important because, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, well, the case fatality rate is this in Italy versus this in South Korea. And we don't fully understand exactly what those differences mean in this context yet. Right. And how much they're going to change as we test more people, as the number of cases grow, as our knowledge about this disease grows. Exactly. Yeah. Number three, we have underinvested in global health security and in international public health and pandemic preparedness on national scales, international scales, regional scales, local scales, state scales, whatever. (laughs) Every single scale. (laughs) On every single conceivable scale for years and years and years. This lack of investment in global health security and pandemic preparedness, it is coming back now to haunt us. And so the amount of money that, you know, speaking for the U.S., the amount of money that we have saved by cutting programs such as the CDC and pandemic preparedness initiatives, that number is infinitesimally small compared to the bill that Mm -hmm. this is going to lead to. Mm -hmm. And that's just the economic bill. The psychological impacts, the social impacts. I mean, this is going to have repercussions for every aspect of our lives. And I think it is going to fundamentally change the way that we live, the way that we work, the way that we communicate, and the way that we think about our own health and safety. Mm-hmm. Say it, Aaron. Number four, we learned from this interview, that there were a lot of different factors that contributed to the slow rollout of tests that we've seen in the U.S. We're doing better now, for sure. There's a lot of different private labs and private hospitals and public hospitals that are developing their own tests, and people are working really hard to try and roll out more and more tests. But that delay has really prevented us from getting the precious knowledge that could have helped to slow this disease. And I think you can't really underestimate just how important that was. Like, this is a thing we've kind of botched. And and like Dr. Kraft mentioned in one of our episodes, it's not like we could have made this overnight, right? But it was kind of months of not not ramping up production on something like this to be able to start rolling out these tests well. And now we're running into further issues of running out of protective equipment, of running out of swabs to actually run these tests. Like we have a lot of issues in in the actual supply chain of testing for this virus. Absolutely. You know, and I think that if we want a silver lining this, then this is hopefully something that we can take and learn from. Yeah. We've talked about this before in the in terms of epidemiologists either always being viewed as overprepared or underprepared yep. or overreactive or underreactive. Yep. And it's a huge challenge. It is. Point 5. I think this is a really important one and this is something that we have hammered on in other episodes in this series so far. We can bring down the R not of this virus through Mm -hmm. control measures and personal decisions. Our individual actions, each one of us has the power to help slow the spread of this disease. We really need to take this seriously. So there was a really great um, modeling study that looked at the data from Wuhan 
like retrospectively after the fact. And they suggested from this that the restrictions that were implemented and people actually, by people actually changing their behaviors, they were able to decrease the r naught in that infection from around 2.4 to 1.4. So they they cut it by 100%, which is massive, massively important. Yeah, it so. can be done. It mm-hmm. can be done. It has been shown to be done. So let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. So. Okay. Sources? Yeah, so that paper that I just mentioned, um, that was a paper by Lee et al. in Science published in Science on March 16th, entitled Substantial Undocumented Infection Facilitates the Rapid Dissemination of Novel Coronavirus. And then there's those uh, papers that we mentioned earlier by Plowright et al. and Kuntz et al. We'll post those papers on our website. And for more details on the timeline, as well as for updates on it, that we'll post the link to that Al Jazeera article as well. Yeah, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Thank you again so much to Carlos. We really appreciate it. We do. And thank you to Bloodmobile for providing the music for this episode and all of our episodes. And thank you to you listeners for sticking through one more episode of this. There's more coming your way. Until next time, wash your hands. You filthy animals.